will be found in the Old Testament book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 5, verses 2 through 30, will be the text that we look at this morning. On a balmy Saturday afternoon in January, one year, an alert warning of nuclear doom was erroneously sent to millions of people across the state of Hawaii. The message read, Ballistic missile threat are inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Those were the words that flashed on cell phones and television screens across the state. The result of a mistake by an employee of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency who selected the wrong option in a text-based drop-down menu. You can imagine the excitement that it caused. The, the agency eventually issued a correction to residents and tourists, as well as Hawaiian natives tracking the impending disaster on the mainland. They tracked it on real-time social media. They criticized the government for taking 38 minutes to issue the retraction. So for 38 minutes, all of the citizens there thought that it was imminent doom. Or in 1883, from what I understand, the greatest volcanic explosion in modern history took place. In, I believe you would say, Krakatoa, it was a volcano in Indonesia. It exploded and shot six cubic miles of debris 24 miles up into the stratosphere. Its shockwaves traveled around the world seven times, from what I understand. And its debris fell more than 2,000 miles away. The official toll, death toll, was about 90,000 people. The sky was so blackened from the clouds of debris that the sun was blocked from the sky for about a 24-hour time period. And it was blocked as far away as New England. At the time of this explosion, the captain of a nearby ship, it was a British ship sailing, and he wrote these words in his log. I am writing this blind in pitch darkness. We are under continual rain of pumice stone and dust. The explosion was so violent that the eardrums of over half of my crew have been shattered. I am convinced that the day of judgment has come. How many of you have had a chance to experience the solar eclipse that happened about five years ago? I think it was in August of 2017. I know my daughter Megan was in North Carolina. And she said that the solar eclipse made the sky so dark that they could see the stars in the sky. And the temperature dropped about 25 degrees during the eclipse. The eclipse had a lot of people excited. Some people were so excited they were partying. Someone noted immediately following the events of the solar eclipse that the festive nature regarding the eclipse brings to mind 
the Babylonian king Belshazzar, who threw a drunken feast the night the Medes and Persians crept under the city gate. It seems that these folks were seeing the eclipse as being the handwriting on the wall. We know that eclipses are not rare, but a hand writing stuff on the wall, that's pretty rare. I'd like to consider now our text and the background for our text today. Babylon was a wealthy kingdom, and the city was considered insurmountable to attack. Greek, a Greek historian claimed that Babylon surpassed in wonder any city in the known world. And he specifically praised the walls, which he said were about 56 miles long, 80 feet thick, and 320 feet high. There was no way that any foreign power was going to take that city. Hmm, We've heard those words before. The Titanic. I think someone said about the Titanic that even God himself couldn't sink it. Hmm. But in the days of King Belshazzar, Babylon was being treated, no, sorry, being threatened, being threatened from the empire of the Medes and the empire of the Persians. And the war was constantly going on on the borders. And that enemy was marching toward Babylon itself. Was the king Belshazzar worried? No, he was convinced that Babylon would not fall to these enemies. Why? Because of that wall. The false security he had. His army was too mighty also. His walls were too imposing. And his nation had dominated this region for nearly a hundred years. It was just not going to happen. In fact, Belshazzar was so convinced that there was no power that overcome him and the nation's might that he throws a party. He made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of these thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought before him, so that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from these special vessels. Let's begin now in Daniel. I'd like to read verses, I'll probably start in verse 1. Verses 1 to 4 of our text. Then they brought in the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and of his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and pressed, or no, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Notice that the king was holding a feast to honor the gods of silver. I didn't know there was a god of silver, but that's who he's praising. He's praising the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood. But he didn't take their vessels to party with, did he? No. 
Instead, he deliberately calls for the vessels of gold and silver that came from the temple of Jerusalem. Now, why would he do that? Well, I think apparently he did it deliberately, didn't he? When Daniel appeared before Belshazzar, he tells us what is going on in verses 18 through 22 of our text. Daniel says, O king, the most high God, he gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was like the wild donkeys. And he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew these things, but yet you humbled not your heart. So what is Daniel saying? He was saying that Belshazzar had deliberately mocked God of Israel because he was ashamed of his father. He knew all the stories. He knew how Nebuchadnezzar had been brought low by Israel's God. And he was embarrassed by it, you might say. So now, faced with an impeding attack by an enemy army, Belshazzar is making an open declaration that he not only rejects any threat by the Medes and the Persians, but he also rejects the supposed power of Daniel's God. Belshazzar is going to prove that he's too powerful to be intimidated by any foreign army or by Daniel's God. He doesn't want to bow down to a God that says that he personally has to change his life. To a God who says, He has to be humble rather than be proud because that is the constant message that God sends to us, isn't it? In James 4 and 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, that's why a lot of people reject God, isn't it? They don't want God to be in charge of their lives And they don't really want to change their lives all that much. They enjoy the earthly pleasures they have. George Orwell once observed, on the whole, human beings want to be good, 
but not too good. And not quite all the time. And that's what many in this world want. They don't want to be changed. They don't want to personally change and give up. They want God to stay over there. They don't want his morality. They don't want him to be in control of their own lives. They want to be in control. And after a while, God says, fine. And you want me off your back? You want me out of your life? You don't want me controlling your life? We can do that. But there's a price. And this is the key. There is a price, though, that will be paid. And the price is that you will be storing up wrath for that day of judgment. Romans 2 and 5. Romans 2 5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's pretty much what happened to Belshazzar. Daniel tells him, now we'll go, in our text, we'll go to verses 24 through 28 of Daniel 5. Then from God's presence, the hand was set. And this writing was inscribed. Do you remember the show, The Adams Family? And that, that thing, the hand used to just kind of... I couldn't even imagine. You understand, this is a hand that appears in his writing on the wall. And this is the writing that it says. And this writing was inscribed, Mine, Mine, Tekel, and Persen. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, I'm not going to go into any great detail on what these words really meant. Truth be told, I don't know in great detail what these words meant. I'd have to talk to some of our other people that know more of the the history behind these words. But all we need to know is that Belshazzar rejected God and that God was sending a message to him. Belshazzar had been weighed in the balances. I'm a math guy. Equations. We always talk about the equations. Right side's got to equal the left side. Whatever you do to the right, you got to do to the left. It's very simple. You add five here, you got to add five over here to keep everything equal. This wasn't equal. He was found wanting. There was no balance in his life. We, as Christians, would love to see our life, salvation, and everything balanced. Ours, God's plan. Our actions, what God wants. Everything balanced. But, we see that Belshazzar has been weighed in the balances, and he was found wanting. His kingdom is being brought to an end. 
And his kingdom was to be divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Wait a minute. These are the enemies that he said no way will take over because of his armies, because of his wall, because of who he is. But yet, we know this is going to take place. The wrath of God had descended upon Babylon. That very night in 539 B.C., the Medes and Persians conquered the city. They didn't have to break down the mighty walls of Babylon. They came up with a plan. Simply, they diverted the Euphrates River that flowed under the walls. They divert the water and then walked into the city on the riverbed up underneath the walls. And verse 30 of our text tells us, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. The point is, there comes a time when God's patience runs out. God dealt with, talked to, notice Belshazzar knew what needed to be done. Jesus asked the words, what shall it profit a man if he gains the entire world but loses his very own soul? The time had come and God's patience had run out. C.S. Lewis once observed that there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, well, All right, then, have it your way. But there is a price that will be paid. You really don't want to be part of that second group. Back in the 1800s, Noel Shaw wrote a hymn about this story, the story we're reading here in Daniel 5. And this is how his hymn went, part of his hymn. See the brave captive Daniel as he stood before the throng and rebuked the haughty monarch for his mighty deeds being wrong. And as he read out the writing, "'Twas the doom of one and all, for the kingdom now was finished, said the hand upon the wall. So our deeds are recorded. There's a hand that's writing now. Sinner, give yourself to Jesus, and before his cross you need to bow. For the day is fast approaching. It must come to one and all, when the sinner's condemnation will be written on the wall. But now wait a minute. I thought God was a God of forgiveness and mercy. Isn't God a God of forgiveness and mercy? Of course he is. What does 2 Peter 3 and 9 tell us? 2 Peter 3 and 9 tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, that all should approach and reach repentance. We think of John 3.16. God sent his only begotten son. While we were sinners, God sent his only begotten son that he that believeth and is baptized. We think about, shall have that eternal life. We think about that the gospel is for all. Jesus died for all. 
Proof of that, the sinners that were on the cross with him. On either side. And we think about Jesus saying to the one, today you shall be with me in paradise. Because that individual thought of Jesus and knew that Jesus was innocent. Knew or thought of Jesus as the Son of God and had done nothing wrong and asked for him for forgiveness in his life. We think about what we have in our lives. The fact of the matter is, there will be a time when people will perish. And they'll perish because they just gave lip service to God. We know that Jesus says in Matthew, not everyone who saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. They saw the handwriting on the wall. By the way, that is the, in case you wonder, the title of the sermon today is Seeing the Handwriting on the Wall. They saw the handwriting on the wall, and they squirmed. They sensed the pain of impending judgment. And they were sorrowful. But when it came right down to listening to God and what he expects from us, they really didn't want to change. 2 Corinthians 7 and 10. New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7 and 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Belshazzar reflected a worldly grief. We're told that when the hand writes a mysterious message on the wall, that he is frightened. Go back to our text. Verse 6 of our text. When he sees this, the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. But then the oddest thing takes place. As soon as Daniel interprets the message, it seems that Belshazzar goes back into his party mode. We can see this if you read in the text, verse 29. It tells us that as soon as Daniel tells the king that his kingdom is about to be destroyed, Belshazzar gives the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. What's going on here? Why this big shift in attitude? Well, the king is trying to buy God off. He's thinking, if I reward the servant of God, if I clothe him with purple and give him a fancy gold necklace and say things, nice things about him, maybe God will realize that I'm not such a bad guy after all. I think that essentially... Belshazzar was trying to appease God with trinkets. He had no intention of changing his lifestyle or of humbling himself to God. He just wanted to pay the bill. He wanted to leave a tip and then move on with his life, controlling it again the way he wanted it. It was the same way with that explosion that I mentioned in the first part of this sermon. There was an explosion That volcano exploded. The skies were so dark in New England that people believed it was the end of the world. According to some sources, at the very start, people began to gather in small groups to question what was happening. Slowly, people began to make their way to the churches. They say that by 
12 noon, every church in New England was filled to the max. They were overflowing with people on their knees crying out to God. There were cries for mercy, people begging for forgiveness, and others confessing their sin. The churches were full late into the night. But then the next day, when the sun rose again in the sky, the churches weren't nearly as full. Many people no longer went to their knees in repentance and for confession. Things went back to normal eventually. There was not the threat of impending doom anymore. They could go back to the idea that God wasn't that as important anymore to them. God was over there, and they were over here. But those who did that, they just didn't seem to realize that they were still under judgment. Today, we are still under judgment. Christ says to us, Be thou found faithful unto death, that you might receive that crown of righteousness that's found in Revelation. I once overheard a sales lady talking on the phone trying to recruit an in-home rep for her business. And I was was eavesdropping on the conversation. Something clicked in me. So I began to write some of these questions down. She asked the rep, are you in for this for the fun? Or are you in it to make some real money? What would you have to make to be happy? How many hours a week would you be committed to this business? Now, we've all heard those kinds of spiels dozens of times before, I'm sure. Essentially, she was asking this recruit, how much is it worth it to you? And does this matter to you? And then I thought, isn't that exactly what God is constantly asking us? How much is this relationship with me? worth to you? And how much are you willing to give towards it? Are you just here to play at Christianity? Or are you really serious wanting to spend an eternity with me in heaven? Now here's the deal. Many people read this tale of the handwriting on the wall and they think it's a cool story. We see it a lot in children's Bibles, and folks remember it from Sunday school classes. But this story wasn't just written down for our entertainment. God placed this story in his Bible because he wanted to remind us that there will come a day of reckoning. A day when repentance will no longer suffice. A day when the handwriting may be on the wall for each and every one of us. It may be the handwriting that God is putting there for us. We know that we have God's word. We know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We know that God sent his only son. We know that Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We know that the question was asked in Acts 2, Men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Be thou found faithful unto death. Those questions we ask today. What are we willing to give? Are we willing to give 
ourselves to Jesus. What does this relationship mean to each one of us? That is what we ask. Are we serious about that relationship? We know what the Bible says. If there's anyone who has the need to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins or for the prayers of the congregation, the invitation is offered to you as together we stand and sing our song of invitation.